Our sermon title for our second presentation is The United States in Bible Prophecy. And before we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we once again want to come before you and ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher here tonight. Lord, we pray that you would guide us, that you would speak to us as we look at at each verse, Lord, from Scripture. Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would help us to see clearly, Lord, what America's role is in Bible prophecy. Lord, we love this country. We have been blessed to be here and to be uh, a part of this land of the free and home of the brave. And so, Lord, we pray that you would please uh, be with us in these last days, Lord, that you would give us understanding and that we would stand faithful to you to the very end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, amazingly, Revelation describes the rise of America. Now, Bible prophecy does not describe the rise of every nation that's ever come on the scene of history. Nations are mentioned in prophecy not because of their size or because of the might of their army, but they are foretold because of their relationship to God's overall plan. When a nation or an ancient kingdom plays a significant part in the fulfillment of God's purposes, that empire is described by the Bible prophets. But to understand the reasons that God foretold the rise of America in prophecy, we need to go back to the year 1776. In Philadelphia at the Continental Congress, a debate was going on to determine the future of America. The debate was over whether or not the United States should declare its independence from England. The discussions were intense. The date was July 2, 1776. The, the debate went on for most of the night. When the vote was taken, it was deadlocked. Delaware had three votes. One of the, uh, one of the Delaware uh, delegates voted for independence. The other one voted against it. And the third dele delegate was there at home on his farm. It was raining and the roads were filled with mud and so he couldn't get there. But a message went out from the Continental Congress and it spread like wildfire through the eastern seaboard. The vote was deadlocked. But this one delegate sensed, I have to get there. I need to be there. And so he mounted his horse and he rode through the mud and through the rain. And he rode all night, arriving the next day to cast the deciding vote for independence. And the story is told of a little boy sent by his grandfather to look through the keyhole in the door uh, to see if the delegates would sign the documents. And the, as the story goes, the, the, the little boy's grandfather was a bell ringer. And if they signed, grandpa was going to ring the bell for liberty. And as the delegate from Delaware arrived, the little boy looked through the closed, locked door. And as he peered through the keyhole, uh, his grandpa kept saying, they're not going to sign it. They're not going to sign it. And the little boy watched as the deciding vote was cast. And he watched as this uh, historic vote for independence went through. And then he began to shout to his grandfather. And he said, ring, grandpa, ring for liberty. And the bell sounded for liberty that day. And for the first time in history, a nation was born on the principles of religious freedom. The United States Constitution guarantees both civil and religious freedom to all of its citizens. And we praise the Lord for that, don't we? According to the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion is every individual's God-given rights. But will these historic freedoms ever be challenged? 
Will church and state ever unite in America again? So does the Bible really mention the United States in Bible prophecy? That's what we want to look at here tonight, friends. Wouldn't it be strange for God to raise up a nation committed to the ideal of democracy and not mention it at all in Bible prophecy? Especially since our country was founded on the principles of religious freedom. Well, we see that the book of Revelation describes those great empires that have had a great impact on Christian history. Now, the Bible, as I already mentioned, doesn't mention every nation that's ever come on the scene of history, but it does mention the nations that dramatically affect God's people and have a significant part to play in the plan of God. The Bible brought Babylon into view. Babylon, uh, through Nebuchadnezzar, they attacked God's people there in Jerusalem. The Bible brought Medo-Persia to view because Medo-Persia would overthrow Babylon and let God's people go free. Greece united their empire with a common language for the gospel to go to the world. And the entire New Testament was written in the Greek language. Jesus was born in the days of Rome. He lived and he ministered and he died in a Roman world. And the Roman church-state union of the Dark Ages compromised truth, as we have seen, and it persecuted God's people and opposed the true gospel. And in Revelation chapter 13, a new beast power is described, and it's different from the first beast that we saw earlier tonight. It says this, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Remember, the first beast came up from where? From the sea. The second beast comes up from the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, let's review. I know we just covered it, but let's review just briefly here. Um, what a beast represents in Bible prophecy. What does it represent? A kingdom. That's what it says in Daniel 7, 23. So beasts in Bible prophecy represent kingdoms or nations. They represent world empires. And we've seen already that the lion with eagle's wings represented which nation? Babylon. Babylon. The bear represented Medo-Persia and the leopard represented Greece. And the dragon-like beast represented Rome. Now, in our last presentation earlier tonight here, we saw that the water or seas represented people or a very highly populated area of the world. Revelation 17 verse 15 tells us this, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So when a beast comes up out of the water, it will be a kingdom that comes up in a very populated area of the world. So let's take a few moments to review uh, some of the points that we covered from our last presentation. We saw that this first beast power of Revelation 13 would grow up out of Rome and that it would first get its authority from pagan Rome, and the papacy did just that. Secondly, we saw that it would be a worldwide religious power. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sins, and we saw that the Roman priests do just that. And then fourth, at times the church would persecute. We saw that that took place on a massive scale. And then fifth, its most exalted title, Vicarious Philly Day, would calculate to 666. Six, it would be a power that would reign for 42 prophetic months or 1,260 literal years. And then it would receive its deadly wound, which would later be healed. And it continues to grow in power to this day. We saw that those 42 prophetic months equals 1,260 prophetic days. And since a prophetic day equals one literal year, 
uh, that time period would be, would be 1,260 years. We saw that this began in AD 538 and that it would end in 1798. Okay, that's just all review from our first presentation. So now there are three questions that we need to ask about this new beast that we're studying here in Revelation 13, the second beast, the land beast, the earth beast, earth, earth beast, there we go. So question number one, where does this new power arise? Well, notice Revelation 13, 11 says that it comes up out of the earth. Now, if C, if the sea represented a highly populated area of the world, then the earth would represent a relatively unpopulated area of the world compared to the nations of Europe. Now, the beast arises in an area of the world that was previously unsettled by nations previously mentioned in Bible prophecy. Question two, when does this power arise? Well, Revelation 13.10 says that he, that is the first beast, who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. So the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 verse 10 arises around the same time that the first beast went into captivity. And we saw that just a few moments ago that the first beast, the papacy, would go into captivity in what year? 1798. And, um, and then the second beast of Revelation 13 would be rising up in an area of the world that was previously unknown, around the time that this first beast went into captivity. And for more than a century, Bible students have seen the unique fulfillment of this prophecy in the United States of America. And this leads us to our third question about this second beast of Revelation chapter 13. And that is, how does this power arise? Revelation 13 verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So this beast arises around the year 1798, and one of its distinguishing characteristics is that it has two horns like a lamb. Now, incidentally, a lion is an old or mature beast. A bear happens to be an old beast as well. If it was a young beast, it would be a bear cub, right? A leopard and a dragon are also old beasts, but a lamb would be a young beast, right? So this would be a new kingdom, a young nation that would come on the scene of history, rising up in a relatively unpopulated area of the world around the year 1798, and he has two horns like a lamb. Now notice what is not on those horns. There are no crowns on the horns of this second beast. Now the first beast in Revelation chapter 13 had horns with crowns. Uh, remember here in Revelation 13, verse 1, it says, Then I, John, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. This is the first beast, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, on his horns, were what? Ten. ten crowns. So the power in the old kingdoms came from the crown or from the kings, the monarchy, right? Crowns indicate kingly authority in the Bible. But the new young beast does not have any crowns on its horns. So the absence of, of crowns indicates freedom. The second beast does not come from a king. It has two horns, 
symbolizing a de democratic republican form of government. It has two horns, two external principles that it derives its power from. Horns are a symbol of power. They indicate that this beast derives its power from political and religious freedom. Now, what are the two foundational principles of American law? It would be religious and political freedom, right? So here is a new power arising around the year 1798, arising in a relatively unpopulated area of the world, not previously occupied by other biblical empires, and it's being carved out by God to champion political and religious freedom, where God's people can speak and worship based according to the dictates of their conscience and according to the word of God. And third, this power has no crowns on its horns. The lack of crowns indicates that this new power is indeed a free power, not ruled by the monarchies. Horns are a symbol of power, as we have just mentioned, and they indicate that this second beast derives its power from political and religious freedom. And this beast is a lamb-like beast, the Bible says, and it springs up quickly to prominence and power. Listen to what one historian by the name of G.A. Townsend described and how he described the rise of America. He said, The mystery of her, that is America, coming forth from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. So America came up out of the earth like a silent seed. What an appropriate description of America. Yes, friends, the United States of America fits the characteristics of this prophecy in Revelation chapter 13. It arose around the year 1798 in a relatively unpopulated area of the world, and it had a different form of government. It had no crowns on its horns. And it was indeed a young nation, uh, like a lamb, not like an old beast. And it would quickly rise to a position of worldwide power and influence. And friends, the only nation that fits this description would be the United States of America. It rose up on time in the right place and in the right way. And friends, it's a beautiful country, isn't it? Amen. It is a beautiful country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. It has done a tremendous amount of good throughout the world, hasn't it? I praise God that from the beginning, America has had religious freedom, and we pray that that religious freedom will continue as as long as God permits so that the work can go forward. Amen? Amen? God indeed knew what he was doing when he raised up a nation that would champion religious freedom. And friends, I wish that it would always be that way. But unfortunately, the Bible tells us that the scene changes. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. The Bible says, Then I, John, saw another beast coming up out of the earth. That's the same beast that we're looking at here. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like what? A dragon. a dragon. That is significant, friends. Now, how does any nation speak? Speaks through its laws, right? A nation speaks through its laws. So could it be that there will be a time in the future that is coming here in America where the fundamental freedoms of America may be eroded? Could it be that laws will be enforced prohibiting our ability to worship freely? I believe so, friends. The time that we miss our freedoms the most is when we lose them. 
Could it be that we have taken these historic freedoms for granted? Does the book of Revelation describe the events that will lead up to this erosion of religious liberty, this union of church and states? I believe it does, friends. Uh, notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 12. The Bible says, and he, that is this beast power, it, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this second beast, the United States of America, exercises all the authority of the first beast, the papacy, in his presence. And this, this first beast had its deadly wound healed, right? And we see that there is an alliance that will take place. Friends, it's been some years since this, uh, this Time magazine ran uh, this cover article, but it talked about a holy alliance where President Reagan and the former Pope John Paul II worked together to bring down communism. Think about that for a moment. The most significant political change in probably the last 100 years was engineered by the leader of a church combined with the leader of the largest superpower in the world. The Bible foretells of a time where there will be a church-state union and there will be an erosion of religious liberty. The book of Revelation says that something unusual will happen. It says that the devil will do something to create this alliance. Look at what Revelation 13, 13 says. It says, he, who would this be? It is the devil working through the land beast. He performs great signs so that he can even make fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now notice the word fire. Some people are confused by this symbolism of fire. In the Old Testament, a pillar of fire led God's people by night. In the Old Testament sanctuary, between the two cherubim, the two angels, God's presence was manifested by fire, the Shekinah glory of God. Fire is always a symbol of God's presence. But in this instance here at the end of time, the devil calls fire down and performs signs and wonders, and there will be a false Holy Spirit movement. Here's a movement that will come about to unite all religions and get legislators to pass laws that would pass religious decrees enforcing worship. It would be uh, based off of signs and wonders, false miracles, and false tongues of fire. The Bible says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So it says that he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Well, friends, how might this deception be carried out by the devil? Well, he's pretty good at deceiving people, isn't he? He's been doing it since the beginning. The Bible calls him the father of lies. And friends, we see that our society is filled with all sorts of problems, isn't it? As a result of sin and, and uh, we know that so many people are addicted to drugs and alcohol and it's destroying the lives of many of our young as well as old. Sexual immorality is commonplace in our world. And the national debt is at an all-time high, and it seems to be just skyrocketing higher and higher year after year, and it doesn't seem to be bothering people too much. We also see that the economy is still really on shaky footing, I believe. And natural disasters occur frequently, and we are seeing this happen more and more, aren't we? 
Think about all the hurricanes we had just this last year. I mean, there was, there was a lot of earthquakes that are taking place on amazing levels. Friends, what if these natural disasters continue to get progressively worse and worse? What if there are food shortages? What, are, what if there are riots in the streets? Do you see how it might be possible at a time of national crisis for Satan to initiate false religious revival based on false miracles to unite people under his banner? Do you see how the scene may be set for this deception? Do you see how well-intentioned people might pass religious legislation and what that might do here in our country? The text goes on to say that he deceives them by signs telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So our text describes an image to the beast. Now, what is the image to the beast? Well, if I said to you that your son was the image of you, what would that mean? It's a likeness, right? It means he looks like you. An image is a likeness of. The Bible says that this second beast, America, the United States of of America will make an image to the first beast, that is the papacy. In other words, there will be a political religious union, a church and state alliance that takes place. And what and when that occurs, friends, religious practices will be enforced. Revelation 13 verses 13 and 14 says, He performs great signs so that he makes even fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So notice what Revelation chapter 16 verse 14 says about uh, about these end time signs and wonders. Who causes these end time signs and wonders? It says, for they are the spirits of what? Demons. Demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So here we see that Satan works through these end time signs to deceive the world to unite against God and against his people. In the last days, friends, there will be a great religious frenzy. People will be rejoicing in these so-called miracles that are being performed and it will be a religious re- and there will be a religious revival at a time of economic difficulty. They will put pressure on the legislators to pass religious laws. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. Does the Bible predict that there will be a mighty revival in these last days? Indeed, it does, friends. The earth will be lightened with the glory of God, the Bible says in Revelation 18. The Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully upon God's true people. The sick will be healed, and there will be true miracles that are wrought. But Scripture also indicates that Satan stirs up the masses in these last days for a false revival. Why does he do this? Because he knows that the true revival is coming. Now the question is, is how can you tell the difference between the true revival and the false revival? That's, that's an issue, right? We want to understand how you can tell the difference. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, it is not what people say, but it's whether they are leading an obedient life. If they are doing the will of God, love always leads us to obedience. 
See, anybody can say, Lord, Lord, but if they love Christ, that love will lead them to do what he says. Many, notice what the Bible says, many. It's, notice it's not a few, but it says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? So friends, they will say that they did all these things in the name of Jesus, but look at what Jesus says to them next. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, I pray that none of us will ever hear those words said of us. I pray that we will instead hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servants. That is our prayer. That is our hope, friends. The evidence is not what people claim to do in the name of God. The evidence is whether the grace of God has led them to obedience and whether it has led them to follow Jesus all the way, 100%. Friends, it is clear that Satan is going to work false miracles in these last days and the crowds are going to be stirred up. Great charismatic leaders are going to arise and they're going to cry out that America is going down and they will cry out for religious laws to legislate morality. So the Bible gives us a principle that will help us to know the difference between the true revival and the false revival. It's found in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. The Bible says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them? No light, no light in them. Now notice carefully, friends, that the Bible doesn't say that there isn't any love there. There are many religious movements that have a lot of love. It doesn't say that there is no truth there. Many religious movements have some truth. The devil wouldn't be able to deceive anyone if he didn't use some truth. It doesn't say that there is no power because the devil has plenty of power to work signs and wonders. The Bible says to the law, that is to the Ten Commandments, to the testimony of Scripture, if they are not teaching what is in harmony with the Word of God, it is because there is no light in them, friends. And light is what we want to follow in these days. Amen? Amen. Don't be concerned if this movement claims to have power. Don't be concerned if this movement is the popular majority. What you are looking for in these last days is light, light from God's Word. And, 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 and his word is going to continue to shine brighter and brighter until he comes, friends. Now, let me ask you a question. If the devil wanted to unite people religiously in a final movement to legislate morality in America, what vehicle might he use? Well, what vehicle did Satan, what vehicle did he use in the days of ancient Rome to unite paganism and Christianity at a time when the Roman Empire was falling apart. He used Sunday, right? We, we covered that last weekend. Might history repeat itself in these last days? In the, in the ancient pagan Roman Empire, the pagans had their differences from the Christians, but the venerable day of the sun united them together. Let's look at a quote here now from the book, The Two Babylons, from page 105, Dr. Alexander Hislop says this. He says, To conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated and to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this, as in so many other things, 
to shake hands. So here we see that paganism and Christianity in those early centuries shook hands, and they united around one thing. They united around a common day of worship on Sunday. Friends, I wonder if it's possible that the wall of separation between church and state that we currently have in this country will crumble. I wonder if it's possible that the devil would stir up people at a time of social chaos and a time of great economic difficulty. I wonder if it's possible that there could be a push to remove the wall of church and state and that Sunday would be a rallying point. Impossible, some say. Well, let's look at some Supreme Court decisions that have happened in the not too far distant past. Look at what the former Chief Justice William Rehnquist said. He said, the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on what? Bad history. This is a fascinating statement coming from the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Here's another amazing quote. This one's from the St. Louis Dispatch, October 29, 1991. It says, as the second century of the Bill of Rights draws to a close, the Supreme Court is redefining what religious liberty will mean in the third century. Broadly, the court's new approach helps conventional religions while hurting unconventional ones. So the new approach of the Supreme Court helps mainstream religions, but if you are a little bit different, there could be problems and there could be difficulties. So is it possible that our historic freedoms could be eroding before our very eyes, friends? Is it possible that at a time of crisis, Sunday could be a rallying point? Former Justice William O. Douglas was talking about old Sunday laws still on the books in many places, and he said this. He says, It seems to be plain by these laws, that is the Sunday blue laws, the states compel one under the sanction of the law to refrain from work or recreation on Sunday because of the majority's view on that day. So Douglas was concerned about the Sunday laws, and Douglas dissented from a vote. Other, some of the other chief justices, they were not quite so concerned. They did not see a difficulty in favoring the voice of the majority. But Douglas's dissent was based on his convictions that you can't legislate for the majority against the minority. Friends, we, we need to respect the rights of the minority too. Amen? Then Douglas continued. He said, the state law makes Sunday a symbol of respect or adherence. Ladies and gentlemen, the law of church and state is being eroded in some areas. The Bible predicts that there will be a union of church and state even here in free America, and that religious leaders will lead out in this. Some may say, well, that's, that's impossible, Pastor. Well, let's look at a mini-crisis that happened back in 1976. Some of you will remember this. Uh, this was before my time. But uh, this is what I have been told and, and read. In May of 1976, there was a great gas shortage in America. Anyone remember this? Okay, all right, there's a few of you out there that can testify to the truth of this. And from what I'm told, there were long lines at the gas pump. Did any of you sit in a long line? Okay, all right, we have some witnesses here. Well, Harold Linzel, Harold Linzel, the former editor of Christianity Today, he suggested a proposal to solving America's gas problem. He said this. 
He said all businesses, including gasoline stations and restaurants, should close when? Every Sunday by force of legislative fiat through the duly elected officials of the people. So basically, he just said, look, we have a big crisis happening here in America. We can't buy enough gas. So if all Christians would just put pressure on their legislators, we'll just use Sunday as a family day. We'll save gas and we will bring America back to God and we will solve this gas crisis. Now, friends, that was a mini crisis. Just think if a major crisis were to hit the United States. What does the Bible say will ultimately happen? Notice what Revelation 13, 15 says. The Bible says, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. That word can be translated force as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So prophecy predicts that our freedoms will be taken away and that no one will be able to buy or sell and that eventually a death decree will go out for those who refuse to worship the image of the beast. Now, does anybody know who this guy is on the screen? This is Pat Robertson, right? Yeah, he ran for president at one time. And uh, in his book, The New World Order, he states this. He says the next obligation that a citizen of God's world order owes is to himself. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a command for the personal benefit of each citizen. Higher civilizations rise when people can rest and draw inspiration from God. Then he says this, laws in America that have mandated a day of rest, that is Sunday laws, have been nullified as a violation of the separation of church and state as an outright insult to God and his plan. Now, friends, I don't want you to miss this. Pat Robertson is a powerful Christian leader, and he says that laws that have mandated a day of rest on Sunday have been nullified and that this is an insult to God. But the Supreme Court has struck them down, thankfully, because they, they believe that it violated the separation of church and state. But notice what he says about that. He says, only those policies that can be shown to have a clearly secular purpose are recognized. So basically he's saying, look, America today is a very secular place. But as Christians, we need to get away from the secularization of America. We need a common day of worship. We need a common day of rest. And he argues that America needs, by legislative law, to be a nation under God and to get back to worship on Sunday. Friends, does the United States need a revival? Absolutely it does. We are a, becoming a godless society here, friends. Crime is rampant. Immorality is commonplace in America. It is so sad. So should we as Christians be crying out for revival in America? Absolutely we should. But we should not cry out for revival at the price of religious freedom. And we should not cry out for the state to legislate morality to bring about revival. That's not how true revival works. Here's how God says true revival will come. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Ladies and gentlemen, true revival in America will never come from political laws. It will never come by Christians putting pressure on their legislators. This will only lead to religious intolerance for those that do not worship in the prescribed way. But friends, God is calling for true revival. He says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and repent of their sins and seek my face, then he will send a revival and that will be a revival of primitive godliness. Friends, do you want to be a part of that revival? Amen. 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 The revival begins in our hearts. It begins down on our knees, truly repenting of our sins, asking God to forgive our sins and to restore us into right relationship with him. God's revival is not a revival based on government laws, but it is a revival of the hearts. And when true revival comes, we do not need the state to pass a law to keep the first day of the week holy. Because when the true revival comes, we will want to do the things that please Jesus because we love him. Because we love him with all of our hearts. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Friends, the true revival will urge people to follow the word of God not out of legalism, but out of love to God. So friends, we have seen tonight that there will be two revivals. There will be a false revival and there will be a true revival. There is a false, the false revival for the majority. The false revival is based on signs and wonders at a time of economic crisis and a time of great difficulty. This false revival will gather large numbers of Christians to put pressure on their legislators and establish a Christian state, a union of church and state that leads to totalitarianism. The second revival is a revival of the heart and mind. It's a revival that places the Bible above tradition. It's a revival of the grace of God that washes us clean from sin. And it is the grace of God that gives us power to live Christian lives. And it is the grace of God that leads us to obedience, friends. It is a revival of all of God's law, including the Bible Sabbath. God will have a group of people in these last days of earth's history that will have the courage to follow Christ at any cost to themselves. They will stand for him at a time of great crisis and they will obey him out of love. Revelation 14 verse 12 describes this end time group. The Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Friends, Christ is calling you to be one of his honor guards. He's appealing to you to stand with those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. He's appealing to you to determine to live for him. So the question is, is will you do it? Will you stand with the faithful of Christ down through the ages? Will you stand with Jesus? Friends, if that is your prayer, would you stand to your feet just now? If you want to stand with Jesus through these last days, through the great tests that are to come, praise God, friends. 
Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to stand faithful for him. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved freedom in this country as long as you have. And Lord, we pray that you would preserve it for many more years, Lord, that as many people might come to know you as possible. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to work for you now, now in the times of peace and and prosperity, Lord, that we would put you first, Lord, that we would have no other gods before you, Lord, that we would prioritize you first in our lives. Lord, we see that America has become a very secular country, Lord. The the world is sucking us in as Christians, Lord. It is trying to draw us away from you, but Lord, help us to set our mind on things above and not on things on this earth, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you in these last days. Yes, Lord, there will be lots of bad things that happen. Lord, we realize that there will be a false revival that will deceive the masses, but Lord, we do not want to be deceived. And we pray, Lord, that you would put a hedge of protection around us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to study your word like we've never studied it before. Lord, help us to have a deeper understanding of end time events than we ever have before. Help us to have a deeper understanding of your love and your character of mercy. And Father, help us to stand for you in these last days. Lord, and may people look at us and may they see that we have been with you. This is our prayer and we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Let everyone say. Amen.